is just full on glamour. Dokie. I'm going to remember to introduce myself. So I'm Zoe. This is my podcast, Take Me or Leave Me, a podcast about the fine line between success and failure in musical theatre. So this episode, I am joined by someone who I know loves an underdog musical, who's been involved with some hit musicals, and is just generally delightful and uber talented. Uh, welcome to Take Me or Leave Me, Miss Fran Rafferty. Oh, what a gorgeous introduction. Thank you so Thank much. You. Rose it myself. Would you tell the listeners, mm-hmm. <laughs> wanker, <laughs> a little bit about uh, your relationship with musical theatre? MT as it's known to the kid. Yeah, if you're down with what's good on the streets, you call it the <laughs> MT. Um, my relationship with the MT, well, other than working in the MT, I, I just love musicals. I, I love them. I just love them. And my first one I remember was watching Hair by... Uh, you love Hair, Herman. don't you? Oh, I It's one of your faves. Um, but mm. yeah, that's ever, and ever since then, I've just absolutely flipping loved them. Pretending to be in them. Walking down the street, pretending I'm in them. Oh, that's a good one. For sure. I would not have the vocab I have without no. many a musical. I would not have the uh, American history knowledge. <laughs> without Hamilton. Without Hamilton. <laughs> I was like, how do you know that year is so specific? And I'm like, well, I hear it during matinees, so it's in there. <laughs> so in terms of success and failure, what do you think a musical needs to be a success? Because there's so many variants, isn't there? Um, there's this little show called Six, the musical, which Never I don't know heard if many people have heard of at all. It's, it's a bit of an underdog. So uh, Six, for me, is successful on so many levels but also in its reach to an audience and the way it has really hooked into an audience. But then you have other stuff and it's like, like Spring Awakening for me was a massive success because it's such a brilliant piece of theatre. And the music is like, when it played at the Lyric Hammersmith, it feels like it was a success. It transferred and but it feels like it outpriced itself. Like its audience that it had cultivated could afford 10, 15 pound, 20 pound tickets. And now suddenly you've got a piece of theatre that has really cultivated a young, almost teenage young adult audience. And it's, but it's wanting sort of mm. middle-aged yeah, prices to be paid. And then you s- sort of see the death of it. I thought my, what might be a little bit interesting for people, just because I didn't talk about it last episode, mm. um, was how I choose the shows that we're going to talk about. I mean, there's some shows that have the stay open for one performance, but I'm not sure that they'd be the most interesting ones to talk about. So mm. basically, I look at three criteria, which is number of performance rolled into that investment money received back. So basically how commercially viable it is. Gosh, yeah. Audience love. So that's what you were talking about, kind of the fandom of shows, whether that's very positive, whether there's not as much of that, and then critical mm-hmm. acclaim. So, so that includes awards and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then if a show doesn't do particularly well in any of those, we could talk about it. So it doesn't have to have failed on all of them, or it doesn't. but if it's done well on all of them, then we won't be talking about it either. Yeah, and I think most of the shows we talk about do well in one of those categories, which is what makes them interesting because you go, oh, but they did. The Times loved it. So why didn't it do well? Right. So this episode, we are talking about the double denim director, (laughs) Sir Trevor Nunn. So Trevor, uh, Trev, which I will call him more than once in this episode, Mm -hmm. uh, he's been involved in some successful musicals. Uh, He's mates with Andy from episode one. So he directed Cat. He directed Starlight Express. He directed Sunset Boulevard, which we talked about last episode as well. He's been the artistic director of both the RSC. Do you know how old he was when he got the job at the RSC? Oh, he was like 12. Yeah, he was 28. 
which just is insane. He has also been artistic director of the National, probably best known as the original director of London's longest running musical, currently in its 35th year, Les Miserable. Now, fun fact, me chose to do a podcast about musicals. Uh, I've never seen Les Mis. I'm shocked. It's my very core, actually. (laughs) I feel like like also maybe... I should edit that bit out because people might be like, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. (laughs) So, yeah, I think this episode will be a little bit different from our first episode only because obviously Trevor Nunn is a director and not a composer. So I think it's a bit different how directors get involved with projects. It's often quite different depending yeah, on the project. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's paycheck, sometimes it's passion project, sometimes it's to cover someone else. We sort of cover all of those in this episode. Important yeah. question. Are you a Trevor Nunn fan? I was surprised when I was doing my research into him how much of his work I'd seen. I thought I hadn't seen very much at all. And I've seen Fiddler on the Roof most recently. That was Andy Nyman. Oh, yes, yes. I saw that one. I've seen his Porgy and Bess. And I saw his Bruno de Bergerac at Chichester. I feel like Trevor Nunn's quite a good adjective for a show. I, I feel agree. like it means like they're quite true to text, quite literal. I think quite like quite true to the whatever the time is. When I saw Cyrano de Bergerac, I remember really liking it. And then you get to about sort of two and a half hours in and you go, okay, I'm done. I'm done now. It, it, it is Trevor Nunn who has the one of the most inhumanly prolific theatrical careers. Yeah. I mean, the career itself is incredible. The amount he's done. But the thing that I sort of kept coming back to is like, he's almost the perfect person to direct Shakespeare, but in Shakespeare's day. Before you had automation. And I think any of his productions, it feels like you don't have any of the kind of whiz-bang, Harry Potter, Hamilton. He's very keen on story, isn't he? It's about the story. Massively, massively. The Shakespearean thing of, you've just seen all of this action, but I'm going to tell you what you've just seen. I think my taste in musicals is I much prefer something that moves the story along rather than tells me what's just happened. So we're going to look into three nun shows, not shows about nuns. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about chess. The score is by Bjorn Uvelsen and Benny Anderson. Practice. Uh, lyrics by Tim Rice and book by Tim Rice and Richard Nelson. The Baker's Wife, music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz and book by Joseph Stein. And finally, Gone with the Wind, music, lyric and book by Margaret Martin. Trevor Nunn had actually already had his big successes with Cats, with Les Mis before any of these shows. So all these shows are post those big musical successes. So we're going to start our journey in 1984-ish. And I am going to apologise in advance because even with the wonders of editing, chess is a beast of a musical. Like we have to tell, we have to talk about story before Trevor Nunn even gets involved in it. So it makes sense. So chess is a musical about chess. I also like the idea that like if you named all musicals like you named chess, the best shows on the West the West End would be like French Revolution, <laughs> Disfigured Man Lives in Theatre, American Founding Father. Say what you see. So yeah, we go back to our friend Tim Rice. Came up with the idea of chess. It's his baby he thought about writing the musical about chess as early as 1972 so kind of even before evita uh, so he saw a grudge match between bobby fisher and boris <laughs> basky and when he saw victor cordachoy play he was inspired by by cordachoy's personal life so he defected to the west in 1974 and he left his wife and his child behind the iron curtain and it was rumored that he had a mistress in the west and when his wife and son eventually left the soviet union he had his lawyer greet them at the airport with divorce papers which is a nice little welcome wow. <laughs> welcome from your shitty life to a shitty life 
Rice thought that all that, like the drama and the sets and the politics of all of that added up to a great musical. What do we think about the ideas? I don't think there's anything wrong with coming up with bonkers ideas, but I do think there comes a point where you have to go, ah, this was just a bonkers idea, and sort of allow it to go to bed. Um, I mean, I think I find this the most bonkers idea, just because it's so untheatrical, so not a musical, so static. Do you know what I mean? Like, I sort of get boxing, (laughs) I get football, like, they're physical. I don't think it's a great idea, but I I can see it. Two men sat at a table for an hour. Watching a little clock, going... your move it's also just like i think maybe it's because i don't know that era of like that bobby fisher but i still don't feel like chess has a big like "Mm, sexy (laughs) (laughs) many a sexy nerd that plays chess i'm sure yeah Um, that's gonna get loads of complaints now being like you don't know anything you haven't watched les mis and you don't know anything about chess I think you'll find chess is the sexiest game there. And maybe it is, maybe it is. Like, it reads like one person's passion project. And sort of what you were talking about earlier, about a general appeal, is like, I think it's really specific that one person has a passion about the idea of chess Mm. being the lens through which you're going to analyse the Cold War. The politics is hard. I think that's really hard to get across in musical theatre, in any, in plays as well. I don't know why I'm saying musical theatre, because I find politics plays quite hard, because unless you go in the door with a basic understanding, you can't catch up in two hours. You can't be like, and now, expert. <laughs> I suppose where where musicals are successful in doing that, it looks at the really human mm-hmm. sort of everyman aspect. I guess to be way. fair to Rice, that's sort of what he was. He went off the personal life of a player. I think you're right. That's what he was trying to do. But then where it sort of goes wrong is that actually it wasn't the politics of the Cold War that made him have an affair. That's just people, of- isn't it? So Rice, he first went to his first time collaborator, Andrew Lloyd Webber, about writing music. Uh, best known for his work in episode one of a brand new podcast about musicals <laughs> but he wasn't convinced and also he was working on his own musical beginning with a letter c with a say what you see title i like the fact that they both were like hey you've got a musical that's about the thing that it's about well i'm gonna call mine the thing that it's about too so rice was told that abba were interested in writing a musical Obvious so choice. he w- he happened to be in Sweden watching a production of Evita and he pitched to Bjorn Ulversen and Benny Anderson the idea. I am going to call those two people ABBA for the rest of the episode. Sure. I am aware that there are four members of ABBA. Sorry, world. So they worked over the next couple of years on the score and then in 1984 they recorded a concept album. Now, I don't know how you feel about concept albums, but I feel like we sort of need more of them because they stop people then producing plays, that, <laughs> musicals that don't work. Because they're just, really reminds me of that bit in Educating Rita when she's asked to write the essay on how do you solve the problems of staging Peer Gynn? And she says, do it on the radio. And, I, and that's, that's the concept album for me because I'm just like, there are no problems mm-hmm. because it's all audio. <laughs> yeah and it sounds great and everyone loves it bada bing bada boom done but it, don't you think chess is just slightly overwritten for a concept album it you don't get a lot of story the from the concept album i think if you listen to, you're still under what you're like who when what, what? <laughs> i would be interested in how much book writing they did for the concept album i feel like they just wrote an album here's a song here's another song the cast for the recording was made up of Elaine Page, Barbara Dickinson, Tommy Korberg, and Tommy Murray Cooper, Head. I thought you were about to say them. It, they were accompanied by the LSO and a choir of 50. Can't get oh, that in a musical. Sake. <laughs> the album did pretty well. It got to the number 10 in the UK charts, number 47 in the US charts. Mm. Uh, the songs One Night in Bangkok and I Know Him So Well became number one hits all over the world. Can we discuss One Night in Bangkok? 
we can because I'm about to play it. <laughs> Thank you. Best that tune. <laughs> so this is One Night in Bangkok from the original concept album, uh, sung by Murray Head. Bangkok, oriental setting in the city, don't know what the city is getting. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but Yule Brinner. That was that. We're also going to play Anthem, which just gives you a different flavour of the set. Because if you just heard that, you'd be like, oh, is the whole show like that? And I'd say, no, hard no. I cross all the borders, but I'm still there now. I mean, my question is, why would you write a song based on national anthems which are shit. National anthems are the worst songs. It's, it's so Ours is dirge. The Americans have a bonkers, bonkers thing, which one of, one of my favourite pieces from a play is the speech in Angels in America that mm-hmm. talks about the American national anthem. That it's like, it's so smart in how it keeps people in its place. It's a song that sets the word free to a note so high nobody can sing it. <laughs> it's also, it's almost like the anthem of a, a really stereotypical nationalist misogynist. The country as a her and how it is owned and yeah, just horrendous, really, really horrendous yeah. as a viewpoint now. As a whole score, mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I don't hate chess. I think it's pretty, I think it's a bit bonkers in places. There's bits where I'm like, why are you, what is... No, it isn't an awful score. It isn't an awful score. I have to confess that I forgot One Night in Bangkok was in this musical. And I had to check that it hadn't skipped onto something else, like a different (laughs) album at that point, because I genuinely had forgotten that it even existed. They they throw everything Mm. that isn't normally in an orchestra at that song. Yeah, I wonder whether when they were recording, well, actually, they go on tour with that album, so I wonder when they go on tour, do the orchestra just sit down? They're just like, go for it. One man on a Casio keyboard being like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and Presco. Ron McClaws um, conducted the cam. For anyone that's listening to this, if you haven't watched them, Oh, they're so good. And his so contemporary good. takes on a musical, that's yeah. how I imagine One Night in Bangkok goes. So the conductor is busy, 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 and then just space bar on the laptop, sit down for five minutes, let it all oh, happen. Yeah, I definitely those Absolutely are recommended. Brilliant. The concept album cast Rice Abba altered the album around Europe. Fun fact, another mm-hmm. person on the tour was Rice's personal assistant who is Judy Kramer, who would go on to be uh, one of the most successful theatre producers in the world due to Mamma Mia. Really? And I believe if you were playing musical theatre as a small world bingo at home, that's a full house. Everyone yeah, knows everyone! <laughs> so the reviews of the album and concert were very positive and this made it come to the attention of the producers at the Schubert organisation in New York. It's them and the Nearlander group, they're the big houses in yeah. Broadway. Money. So producer Bernie Jacobs said chess was the best score he'd heard since My Fair Lady. Okay. 
there was a bit of a fight to produce chess because lots of people were interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Schubert organization won because they promised to bring on director Michael Bennett. Oh. He is best known as the creator of A Chorus Line, my favorite of the musicals. Yeah. Um, and Dreamgirls original director. After those shows, he had a little bit of a slump. The writing team weren't super convinced about him as a director. They worried that he didn't really have the same passion as they did for the project, which I think is fair enough. I think he was doing it as a gig. He wasn't doing it because he was like, you know what I love? Chess. Rice said, I never had the feeling my Michael really wanted to do the show. That may have been the beginning of our troubles. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. But Bernie Jacobs was a long, long time supporter and friend of Bennett. So he sold him very hard. And eventually the contracts and most importantly, ownership was sorted out. So Rice and Abba would own 50%. The Schuberts would own 25%. And Bennett would own the last 25%. Hmm. Their plan was to open in London and then come to Broadway straight after. And it was the most expensive production in West End history at the time. So before rehearsal started, Chess was given a £2 million budget, which sounds quite small now. But in 1986-ish, um, that's pretty big, I think. Pretty huge. It's massive. Like, and what um, are they spending it on? There are, like, seven ooh. principal roles well, in this show. Well, I can tell you what they spent it on. Oh, this is going to be Set. good. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, just what they said. Bennett quickly came up with plans of how it should be spent, and he saw chess being performed in front of a wall of video screens. So the designer Robert Wagner said yes to that, but also came up with a giant computerized chessboard on which the action would take place. It was computerized so that it could change shape and become like a hotel room or a mountain range. Some good photos, original photos of them in their alpine outfit. It looks Bonkers. like um, looks like that opening scene of Spamalot. Oh, I'm. Well, there you go. You see, that answers the question almost immediately, doesn't it? Really? Doesn't it? So. Obviously all that set was adding up, but it was fine. It was all within budget. It wasn't going over. It was fine. So everyone was headed to London. But then one morning, heading up the stairs to their rehearsal room, Bennett collapsed. Um, so he flew back to New York to see his doctor there. And then he flew immediately, not back to London, but to St. Bart's. And from there, excuses started coming thick and fast. Bennett didn't like working in London. He didn't like the casting of Elaine Page. He didn't like Rice's script. Whatever it was, Bennett was leaving chess. Now, mm. this concerned Bernie Jacobs because he saw chess as his friend's child to make a big Broadway comeback eventually decided to confide in Jacobs about the real reason for leaving and he took him into the men's bathroom at their Broadway office and showed him the purple scabs all over his chest and then it had AIDS and he would be dead within the year and that's it's why. like the most tragic loss in theatre actually this it broke Bernie Jacobs heart so he just started to focus on how he could get his friend make his friend better but he did keep it secret from the rest of the chess team so the rest of the chess team were told that Bennett had a heart condition hence why he had to leave with the exception of the other producer Robert Fox Fox said on a personal level we were incredibly upset on a professional level we were in the shit the show was nearly cast the set was being built we had a theatre date and we were selling tickets so Fox would end up taking on raising not only his investment money but also the £500,000 Bennett was meant to contribute so chess obviously needed help and Trevor Nunn here he is finally after all that talk Jeez Louise. So he said, I could see the Schuberts were in terrible distress. I also felt for Michael. I admired Michael to idolatry. Felt despair on his behalf, so I undertook to do it. It's something that people in the theatre community can occasionally do. You owe each other. It's a lovely thing to say. It's such a lovely thing to say. I'm a little bit cynical about it because none may just have taken on chess through the goodness of his heart, but he also got a pretty good deal out of it. So none had wanted the Schuberts to produce the Broadway revival of his production of Nicholas Nickleby. And they were unsure about 
have its viability. It had already been once on Broadway and they weren't sure that an audience were there to see it again. Probably because it's about a hundred years long. Makes the inheritance look like some sort of royal court upstairs show. Dunn said he would help with chess if the Schuberts would foot the bill for the revival. So to get none on board, Robert Fox, Abba and Rice all had to put their money into both shows. They had to produce both chess and Nicholas Nickleby. Robert Fox said, not only am I a producer of chess for £500,000 I have yet to raise, but I'm now also a proud owner of 25% of Nicholas Nickleby, which I don't want. <gasps> he said Robert that! Fox. So yeah, Rice and Abbott ended up putting $1 million of their own money into Nunn's revival of Nicholas Nickleby. God. before he'd even signed on to do their passion project. They were funding nuns. Um, so Fox was kind of right, though, to not want his 25% of Nicholas Nickleby because it opened in 1986 and it lasted 29 performances. Oh! <laughs> they all lost their investment. Surprise, that just hurts my soul! But not to worry, because tickets for chess were selling super good. Oh. But none, however, was it a bit of a pickle because as director, he'd inherited Bennett's set, his production team, his yeah. concept. So as none of himself put it, there were occasions where I did feel that I was in someone else's shoes and that I wasn't quite speaking with my own creative persona. Where Bennett saw chess as a huge, technically extraordinary, like, rock concert, none wanted realism. And for Trevor Nunn, in chess, realism meant furniture. So apparently none requested 47 chairs in total. <gasps> because of this kind of awkward place of first director, second director, none was making a lot of requests and a lot of changes to make the show his own. And as we know changes cost dollar so during rehearsals in london the budget grew from two million pounds to four million pounds and bernie jacobs who was thinking about michael bennett's health seemed to say yes to everything mm. bernie jacobs wasn't the most hands-on producer and he wasn't even in the same continent but he was undoubtedly the boss of that show which made life very difficult when one day after a nap jacobs awoke with no memory no long-term memory no short-term memory <gasps> and he was diagnosed with something called transient global amnesia which means that you are incapable of remembering anything but the last few moments of consciousness so like oh one or two minutes gosh. it's not like dementia or anything like that it goes but there's no mm. cure for it you just have to wait until your brain comes back and works again it must be so scary and horrible like bleh. just horrible so that was the second medical tragedy to hit chess so fox took over as producer of the whole thing and together him and nun attempted to steer this ship called chess they made it to tech and no one had got any more terrible diseases and no more money had been spent so now they just had to get that hydraulic chessboard and it weighed one ton Ugh. to work it was operated with a joystick which made it tricky to move <laughs> Um, and often when it did move it would scrape the stage underneath it which would make a sound like a high-pitched screeching sound that was louder than any of the Casio keyboards in One Night in Bangkok uh, this was just before tech so Trevor Dunn said you've got 24 hours to make it work or we cut it and this is something for me as a member of a production team make me so cross <laughs> <laughs> Um, because this is something that happens to you quite often in work is that director teams will say if something's not working we just get rid of it and it makes a lot of sense because you don't have a lot of tech time you don't have a lot of mm. you know on stage rehearsal time but when you think about the amount of work and also the amount of money like you're just throwing money away but they got it working production yeah. teams are amazing because we always do we always get it working we're always production like I take amazing. your challenge and I'll do it but I won't be happy about it they got it working they only had to cancel five previews so tech was quite difficult like it's 
quite a heavy slog of a tech, mainly because there was so much technical stuff to do with the floor, with the video wall. Lots of the time they wouldn't sync up. Lots of the time one would work, the other wouldn't. But they made it to the first preview day, which was also the dress rehearsal day. And the dress rehearsal was kind of okay. It was bumpy, but not terrible. Curtain fell. Tommy Corbett, her leading man, collapsed. He was taken to hospital. He was diagnosed with a mixture of exhaustion and stress. But don't worry, he got back to the theatre for the first preview night and they only went up at eight. No! No, 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 no. Do the preview another, like... (sighs) The concept of the show must go on. Just you wait. They did the first preview. They had stuff to cut. They had stuff to work on, as you would do with any preview session so they were doing fine for four days <laughs> only crew member who could work the floor why is there only one crew member who could work the floor with the joystick but he was taken to hospital with a collapsed lung <gasps> now the 9th of may is a saturday for complex damn it more cancelled previews you'd think but no because he discharged himself and went on to work both the matinee and the evening show of that I'm day on. and this is where again myself as a production team member is like there is a level to which people are expected to commit to shows which is just insane in any other job if you were like an accountant and you were like oh my leg's fallen off but I've, I've made it into work because of the sheer love of it people will be like you're in go away like in theatre apparently that's like that's the sort of can do attitude we need around here no. and it makes me angry <laughs> so angry nobody's gonna thank you well they might at the time they might be like oh you're a hero I, I understand you can't breathe properly because one of your lungs is collapsed but please I mean, do get on that about it on a podcast. 30 years later you do it and I I couldn't tell you why you do it but it makes me cross that if you don't people will be a bit like "Mm, you you could have hobbled him couldn't you 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 could she really want it shut up it's my job (laughs) I shouldn't have to want it I should just have to do it and be paid for it leave me alone that was that was that previews happened we got to press night mixed reviews is what chess opening in London got I would say for some it was far too long that's a quote it was also gift wrapped and gorgeous it was an incoherent mess and it was a fine piece of work sometimes mixed just means bad like it's a nice way of saying bad but I think those really are genuinely mixed it's very varied isn't it the main thing that a lot of people agreed on was that none did an amazing job of taking over a show bringing a show like that with lots of problems together I do think there's a level of kindness that can creep in in those Hmm. moments Mr Nunn has stepped in to continue other people's passion project but on behalf of somebody so that maybe maybe that explains the mixed reviews chess was fine in london even after mm. those reviews it, it stayed open for three years yeah. um wasn't at all unsuccessful in in london the problems start there's so many problems already many <laughs> the problems, problems continue <laughs> on Broadway but Rice said about none it all got a bit fraught to put it mildly but Trevor did a great job in that working against almost insurpassable odds he got the show together a show he was not 100% happy with to the extent that it wasn't totally his concept but with what he was given and what he was lumbered with he put together a pretty good show what a word what a word to use lumbered there's no kindness in that but yeah what uh, one surprise guest at the London opening was Bernie Jacobs who was oh. slowly getting better but I think his review was maybe the most damning of all. And he said nothing apart from Michael would have done it better. Oh, which oh, is I tough, love him. I think. So loyal. I know we've been talking about chess for what must seem like 17 days. Like the length of a Trevor Nunn show. <laughs> <laughs> 
but we are going to just travel with it a little bit more because when it goes across the Atlantic to Broadway, the, the troubles have not ceased. I can't imagine the Americans bought into this at all. I think other countries telling countries what you're like is always a bit like. I think so. I think I really yeah. don't think Americans like being told what they are like. I think it's all. I think it's any like. I think it's any nation. I remember seeing Come From Away and the amount of people who were like, uh, British people aren't bumbling idiots, and I'm like, well, well, they're a little bit. They're we're a little bit. bit. But also, I think the sore point of like the Cold War is raw, raw material. That's pretty massive to turn around to a country and be like, this is our view on yeah. your part in this. Yeah. The reason we're talking about it on Broadway is because Broadway is really where it became Trevor Nunn's show. Oh, interesting. To rebuild the floor and the video wall for America, because obviously they couldn't take it because London was doing well, so they had to build it again, was going to cost $15 million, which I can't work out how it's that much more expensive. What are you building it out of, gold? Ten times the budget of the whole show. An insanity. So yeah, so the set was going to get redesigned and the script was going to get rewritten. There were so many rewrites. The Broadway version of this show in comparison might be controversial. Yeah. And say, I actually sort of like the Broadway version. It, It sort of made me like the show. The main change between London Chess and Broadway Chess is that it actually changes what kind of musical it is. London Chess is a sung through musical. It's basically Les Mis. Isn't talking, there aren't scenes. Broadway Chess is a book musical. There's a song and then there's a whole scene and then there's a song and then there's a whole scene. So I think it undoubtedly tells a better story. Everyone who knows those two shows said at the time, it's clearer, we know what the story is, we're not lost, we're not like, what's happening? I think their bolstering of the role of Florence as well for Broadway. Mm. And, and a lot of that I think you can credit to uh, so the version I was listening to was the Judy Kun version Which and is, I mean yeah, she, is, she yeah. is astonishing and her version of Nobody's Side is pretty breathtaking and you get a sense you get a sense of Florence being so much more prominent and fleshed out in the Broadway version than in comparison to the West End version which seems so steeped in the men that you yeah. sort of go I'm bored. So this change in Florence's character is probably the biggest bit of contention over the rewrites of Chess because Ooh. Tim Rice wrote the role of Florence for Elaine Page. Tim Rice and Elaine Page allegedly uh, had a long-term affair. No. So Rice was very certain that Elaine Page would go with Chess to Broadway. So basically, for Broadway, both Rice and Kohlberg were rejected by American Equity to perform on Broadway. Page um, and Kohlberg. Who did I say? Rice. That no one wanted Rice to play Florence, and he was very upset <laughs> about that. Um, no, sorry. Page and Kohlberg were rejected by American Equity to perform on Broadway, and it seemed like nobody, with the exception of Rice, was willing to fight for that. A lot of the times, people are rejected or transfers and directors and producers say well you have the show with those people or you don't have it at all that's kind of the mm, that's the deal that's the caveat what happened it, with yeah. Phantom it, but yeah nobody seemed to i.e. Trevor Nunn didn't do this so the cast is completely different on Broadway from the London production as well so it is pretty much a whole new thing so like you said Paige was replaced by Judy Kuhn and Kerborg was replaced by David Carroll the strangest thing for me I think is that although there was a set change the set remained technically difficult like me I was like if you're going to change a set if you're going to get rid of a whole load of computerized things why replace it with a whole load of a, a different load of computerized things just have a hotel room if that's what you want just have some flats and some chairs like yeah. go for it no I don't care so they basically then came up with this thing that was towers that were meant to be motorized that would move into different places and create different spaces and in the end they wouldn't work so they put people inside them which then needed hours and days and weeks of rehearsal because it's movement you can't just be to a 
crew member, like just uh, A2 to A3. It's insanity to me that so that they was... they used human chess pieces, effectively. Sounds like you've just had a whole load of Daleks on stage, like... Great idea at the time, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. In true Trevor Dunn fashion, the first preview of Chess on Broadway ran over four hours long. Oh my gosh! With a 90-minute interval, because the crew people in Towers were having some problems. They did get that down by press to three hours 15. Still too long in my book, I'm afraid. Yeah, and it closed after 68 uh, performances. So it did... What's that, like two months? I think they thought that they would be boosted by Tony nominations, but in the end they only got two. Judy Kuhn got one and David Carroll won. They got nothing for score, nothing direction. Not even for the people in the towers? Which is insane to me. That is the end of Chess. I mean, it's not. Chess has gone on to do lots of revivals, played all over the world. People love it. A lot of revivals, people mix London and they mix Broadway to make try and make this perfect chess show. Um, It's a big Amdram show. Amdram completely love it. Small principal cast, massive ensemble. Perfect Amdram show. So what do we think with the power of hindsight? Well, it sits in that perfect little sweet spot of Venn diagram. The, The concept album, the exposure on television. Amazing, 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 amazing. Ticket sales in London, three year run. Incredible. I don't know how much money they lost on Broadway. They must have lost... 15 million apparently. <laughs> no, well, no, because they did a, They did the People in Towers. Beep, boop, beep, boop. Quite rightly said at the beginning, I think it, it should have stayed as a concept album. And then done like a live concert of it. Well, that's one of the most popular productions of it that has ever been is the most recent London one, which is Eno stage concert. And mm. sort of like we were talking about before, Chess definitely has fans. There are people who ruddy love Chess. For me, just as music, I like it. I can't get on board with the story, but I'm just not that bothered. <laughs> the Cold War not float your boat? It doesn't really. I'm a bit like, ugh. I don't know. Next up is The Baker's Wife. Now, I had heard of The Baker's Wife. I didn't know what it was, but I just assumed that it was just some sort of like sequel to Into the Woods. If it had have been, I think, much more successful. Spoiler alert, if the baker's wife did not indeed die in Into the Woods. Maybe if you did it, like, if that was your concept, you just did the baker's wife as it is. She's run out of the forest, found this baker, and married him instead. Another baker. Another, a different one, a French one. She loves bakers. bakers. Uh, Well, she's the Kushner. She's the baker's wife. She has no name. He only directed one show in between Chef and The Baker's Wife, which was his third Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Aspects of Love. Creepiest musical ever. Not ever. There's loads of creepy musicals. I have never, ever, I think I got grossly put off by Love Changes Everything. Love love Changes Everything. Just was like, no, this is not a musical for me. No, thank you. And have Uh, blocked it out of my life. Pedophiles, really, is what I'm going to say. That's what I'm going to say. No, thank you. So The Baker's Wife... (laughs) Um, like Chess had an equally rocky life before Nunn became involved in it he found out about the show because he kept hearing people singing a song called Meadowlark at auditions The Baker's Wife is based on a 1938 French film of the same name and it follows a village baker whose younger wife Genevieve runs away with the local businessman's chauffeur when the baker finds out she's gone he's devastated he goes to the cafe gets drunk and ruins the next day's bread and then says I'm not making any more bread the villagers are like what? No! So they get together, they try to find the baker's wife so that he can go back to making bread. And they find Genevieve at a bus stop after she's had like a night of passion with the chauffeur and decided that no, actually she can't. But she's very ashamed, she's very guilty. And they say, don't worry, all sins can be forgiven. Come back. She goes back, she gets to the baker's, he's a bit in denial. Of, and then the cat comes, they've got a cat called Pom Pom. Uh, cat comes in, he takes all his anger out on the cat. He's like, oh cat, why have you come back, you dick? And he's like, if you're gonna go, just go. 
go. The baker's wife says, I won't go ever again. And then, yeah, then they make some bread. And that's the end of the musical. Well, it's just pants, sorry. <laughs> but it is. It's pants. You preempted my question of what do you think of that idea? Well, it's just a nonsense, isn't it? <laughs> And then, so the Marquis turns up and he's like, I found you a baker and his daughter. And then the baker turns around and goes, no, 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 she's not my daughter. She's my wife. <laughs> she's my sexy young wife. And then all the villagers are like, hey, young lady, don't you want to be with anyone else? Then she gets driven to the point where Dominic the chauffeur turns up and he's like, hi, sexy lady. And she's like, oh, I'm so confused now because the villagers are telling me I should be with somebody younger. But I actually sort of like this older dude who's actually mm. really nice to me. Oh, uh, do you know what? I'm going to sing this song that is actually infinitely more interesting as a story than the entire musical itself. No wonder Trevor was like, oh, this song must belong to a banging musical. And Meadowlark is incredible. I watched the film, the source material film. I kind of like it. I'm the opposite end. I don't like how the story treats the baker's wife. I find that all super problematic. Very good in that sort of ensemble villagey way. I think it nails it yeah. in that. I don't hate it as a story. I think if you're going to do it, you have to reinvent it and give her more of personality than just... Why do we care about her? I find Meadowlark... almost find it like a one night in Bangkok. I find it really incongruous. It's great, but in the whole of the musical, I'm like, what's happened? Totally Where agree. are we? <laughs> Completely agree. As a standalone number, but then I think you're really right. Where does it sit in the musical? So it's written by Stephen Schwartz and Joseph Stein. It's one of Stephen Schwartz's earlier shows. It was was written and then it was found as a vehicle for Topol's first Broadway show. That's what it was going to be. He was going to be the baker. Bada bing, bada boom. Was doing tryouts outside Broadway. Disastrous. So disastrous that the writing team shut it down. They were like, this isn't coming to Broadway with our names on. Ah, ah. So it closed while it was on the road. It lost a million dollars in 1976, which must have been like three trillion dollars now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So to me, it seems very strange to take on a show with a reputation like that three years after you've been involved in chess. I would think you just wanted an easy life for a bit. But that's the kind of thinking that means I'm not a millionaire and Trevor Dunn is, so... It's really in his wheelhouse in terms of storytelling. There's nothing crazy about it, I don't think. So he started to try to convince Stephen Schwartz and Joseph Stein to work on the show again, which was very hard because they were they talk about it and they're very emotionally involved in it and were very upset when they had to close it. They really felt their show that they loved had been destroyed by producers and directors trying to do things with it mm. on Broadway. So Nunn managed to convince them by suggesting they just revert to what they originally wanted to write. He was like, we'll do what you wanted to do first time you Let's hear some of the original London cast recording of The Baker's Wife. <laughs> So I would play Meadowlark because that's the song that inspired them to do it. But I don't want to and it's my podcast so I can do what I want. <laughs> you do you, babe. Um, so I'm actually going to play Chasson, which is the opening number, sung by Jill Martin. Every day touches you now in a different way And you may want to run or you may want to stay forever What did you think of the score as a whole? I 
couldn't pinpoint a song out of it other than Meadowlark. I felt like it wasn't so much Stephen Schwartz. Was Pippin just after or before? Almost Four every- years before. Interesting. I can hear um, Glory. <laughs> like, name a song, Corner of the Sky. Every song has at least a memorable snippet to it, which you hook into and end up whistling. It almost feels like he only wrote Meadowlark. I really liked it. The film and the musical. Yeah, I have problems with the story, but I think just the score, I think, is really lovely. I like Messy Madame. I like Proud Woman. I totally agree with you that they aren't numbers. I like it because I like it as a whole. It feels quite atmospheric in a bit of a low, a low way. There's a bit too much accordion, probably. It sort of reminds me a little bit of Amelie. Obviously, Amelie has a, such a stronger story and is a bit more theatrical, and I like it for that. The Baker's Wife is pretty straight. I think it's very pretty. And there's no crime in that. Which is sometimes just what you need. It did have a, a reasonably critically successful run at the union I think it was Lynn Gardner sort of really appreciated the musical for the fact that it was te- it was stripped back to an intimate bijou little boutique yeah. musical rather than being an extravagance what it actually is mm. is it boils it down to the simplicity of the story it feels like a passion project for none because he must have really wanted to do it he produced The Baker's Wife as well as directing it his wife played the lead and he gave it his time which is something he is known to be quite sparing with workshopped it the out of town previewed it it then went into london there were rewrites again extensive rewrites for the london production the main edition is sort of more backstory it's this he really wanted to add depth to all the other the villager roles so not just baker baker's wife chauffeur all the characters having a bit more to do and i think that is something you get from the film a lot so i can see why that thinking comes across i Mm. don't think it necessarily is that they have backstory it might just be a little bit better written in terms of the few lines they say you get a lot from them nice thing that the film does is that it, it captures that idea idea that it takes all sorts of people to make up a community and that you need mm. all of them for it to be harmonious and I, in the research lots of very fond memories all the production team talk about how they remembered getting nightly standing ovations when they previewed out of town got to the phoenix in london and again they opened to mixed reviews the times said it was charming robust enjoyable and an intimate musical while the financial times said it's a near decent musical with about one and a half good songs they go i'm the times you're the financial times the show lasted 59 performances so the production team sort of they all differ in their reasons for why it didn't succeed none blamed the theatre so the Phoenix was the only available theatre that season and he said it made the production too remote for the audiences because all the out of town tryouts had been on a thrust stage Joseph Stein the book writer blamed the lack of star I mean he's American so I don't think he realised that so Alan Armstrong played the baker and I think in 1989 that's a good star Hmm. British star name so I think that was just a sort of miscommunication um, he'd done Les Mis as well for Trevor, hadn't he? Yeah. I really like his singing voice as well because I'd never heard it. I like someone who can sing with their accent still. Yes. I was thinking that about Gary Spice from the Spice Girls. Okay. Not the same. She wouldn't be any good in The Baker's Wife. But anyway. So Joseph Stein also says this thing which is really intriguing and I haven't found any more information about it. He said one member of the cast was really unfortunate. That's one of his reasons for it not working. (laughs) I couldn't tell you who that member is but I'm just so intrigued by the fact that he thinks it hinged on this one person. What was he talking Um, about? I suppose I could only guess he's talking about the cat because they had a real cat. Yeah, probably. Like 18 members of cast and a cat. Stephen Schwartz thought the issue 
play in how long it was he said it was simply too long and he says and we cut a good half hour to 45 minutes it's not a big enough story to justify being three hours long how is it three hours 45 amen every show we're like trev just cut it like you need to get someone who can cut for you because it's too long this is not shakespeare (laughs) after the baker's wife none directed loads of shows prolific he's absolutely prolific he won some olivier awards he got divorced he got remarried he was knighted busy busy busy. amazing he never had another level of hit like Les Mis or Cat but I do think those are like once in a lifetime I think it's amazing he's had two I mean how many other people can go I've had two global successes at that level like two of the longest running musicals in the world ever you know plenty of successful plays musical revivals in between 1989 and 2008 which is when we're going to join him again so he started work on a completely new musical and the story goes that one day Trevor received in the post a CD and a script pops the CD in the car while he drives his children home from school kids like it Trevor wakes up the next morning singing it so he reads the script and sets up a meeting with the writer and that's how easy it is to get a West End show ladies and gents Gone with the Wind is based on the 1936 book by Margaret Mitchell more than it's based on the 1939 film of the same name. For those of you who don't know, the plot follows the story of Scarlett O'Hara, who is the spoiled daughter of a well-to-do southern landowner who must use every means at her disposal to claw her way out of poverty following the Civil War. Some more American history politics. So it's an epic in every meaning of the word. (laughs) The film's nearly four hours long. So on that point alone, perfect project for Trevor. He must have been like, hey... I love Gone with the Wind. It's super long. (laughs) What do we think about it as an idea? Terrible. Terrible. And can I tell you why? Please do. Slave. Yeah, it's so... It's just so shockingly misguided. It's a prime example of white woke women trying to try to help out. Oh god! And you're like, just no one needs no one needs that. Thank Karen. Do you know I was watching the um the Newsnight review and I remember seeing the Newsnight review at the time. For, for for listeners, I would really recommend watching YouTubing the Newsnight review of Gone with the Wind the musical. It, it is incredible. it's savage, but it's it's good. absolutely savage. But it <laughs> but it hits the nail on the head because actually, if you're gonna do a version of Gone with the Wind what you want to do is you want to turn it you want to reverse it no one gives a shit about Scarlet nobody cares about a spoiled entitled white woman messing up her life continuously in a really brattish manner but what we do care about and I think what the film proved we care about actually is the story that's that is being used as a background there's something as well to be said for knowing what's come before. There is a Gone with the Wind musical called Scarlet that was written before this Gone with the Wind musical. And that is also oh. a terrible plot. Like, I think <laughs> it's one of those things as well where people go, oh, but it's big and it's epic. All the themes are right. But for me, the film is a great piece of filmmaking. So you've got mm. that on top of it when the majority of people are going to know the film over the book anyway. And they say that in the Newsnight review that you can't do nature and you can't do close-ups. It's two things you can't do in theatre. And that is what that film is entirely about. It's about sunset and literally like super close on yeah. Vivian Lee's face. And that is what people are going to have in their head. And there's no way you can ever hope to replicate the sense that i get from watching the documentaries from watching the epk footage from those kinds of things is that there's character study that goes on which is referring to the film the film itself is melodrama and then if you are then caricaturing melodrama you're sort of proving everybody's concern about musicals to be right and unless you are genuinely aiming to do a melodrama and you are so entirely invested in that genre 
I think what you end up with is this confusing message of, well, I don't know what I'm watching. There is a TCM documentary that they made about mm. the musical, which is where we got a lot of information from. And it, there's a weird bit in the beginning where the guy who's playing Ashley Wilkes is like, mm. so there's this thing that Trevor does in rehearsal where he basically lectures you. I have been part of musical theatre processes, which have been sitting down listening to lecture versions from the director yeah. on, on the content of the show. And it, and I think there is a part of musical theatre actors who are just like, I want to get on my feet. I want to be learning the music. I think the thing that, looking at the whole show for me, the thing that amazes me the most about Gone With The Wind is Margaret Martin, who wrote the mm. music, wrote the book, wrote the lyrics, which in itself is incredible and mental. I feel like it's so rare. I've been trying to think about someone else who does all those bits. That amount of responsibility, I think. Lin-Manuel is... Miranda. Yes, it's a good shout. Although I would say In the Heights, which has a book, has a different book writer. Mm. Hamilton doesn't have as much of a book. It's not as a book, but you know what I mean? It's not like a book book. Uh. So I'd say like, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but what I can definitely say is Margaret Martin is no Lin-Manuel Miranda, just so everyone's clear Sorry, Margaret. on that. She'd never written anything before Gone with the Wind. She hadn't written any plays. She hadn't written any musicals. She hadn't written a pop song. She hadn't written anything. She is mainly known as the founder of a non-profit in Los Angeles, which is called The Harmony Project, which provides arts education to underserved children, giving them instruments and music lessons. She's written books about healthcare. She got her doctorate from UCLA at the age of 33. She doesn't talk much about her early life, but she she does describe herself, she describes herself as a battered teenage mum. That's how she says Gosh. about that early part of her life. And she rightly says that after the difficult early years of her life, she says, nothing I could think of could be more difficult than what I had already done. She got to a point wow. in her life where she said, what is the most fun thing I could do? I want to do that next. That's what I want to do. And for her, that was writing a musical. But she never thought it would be hard because as she says in her own words, people say, oh, writing Gone with the Wind is so difficult. No, that first journey was difficult. This journey has just been joyful and I really know the difference. So for me, she's this really incredible woman, but I still have a massive question, which is how, how did a producer or none or anyone say yes to doing this without then saying, but you need to work with someone for all the heart that you have, you've never done it. And you need to work with somebody who maybe well, even has done it once. Co <laughs> yeah, Trevor was co-adapter, right? The credits differ. Sometimes mm. she's credited as doing everything and sometimes he's credited as co-adapter, i.e. Okay. for the book. You know, he is credited elsewhere. Like Katz, he's credited as a lyric writer. Like, I think he gets his credit when it's due and whether he wanted to, then he later took his name off it or I don't know. I mean, this is the thing as well. Budget was £4 million. It was widely talked about in the press. It was a big old show. It doesn't have any out-of-town tryouts. It goes straight into the new Crazy. London it doesn't go into a smaller theatre it goes into the new London and you know I think obviously all of this comes from me being super jealous I'm like why is no one giving me a show I haven't done anything give me a show all right all right go with the wind the musical I'll take 79 performances in the West End that'll be the best day of my life maybe there's an element of them just going well the source material is so strong there's such a passion and love I think that's definitely it I think Trevor Dunn was a huge draw I think he was the name on this really a lot of people have said about Margaret Martin when she talks she speaks very confidently, she's very earnest, she's very full of emotion. And I think it's those qualities that meant that she could talk people into backing her because she got the performance rights from Margaret Mitchell's estate. She got none involved. She 
got the project off the ground it wasn't like she was sitting in Los Angeles and someone came and found her she read an article about Trevor Nunn and was like he can direct it he's a musical yeah. theatre director it's like it's an amazing level of an amazing level of confidence that I just don't I'd be like you can't ask Trevor Nunn it's Trevor Nunn I must ask <laughs> this person who no one's ever heard do you know what I mean this is a slightly different show for us to be talking about because there is no record well I can't find any recording of it it hasn't ever been revived it hasn't been on Broadway so it's a tricky one um, and there's no original London cast recording of it again we can't make huge sweeping comments about it's a failure because of the writing there are a couple of videos of the original cast so to give us a flavour of... oh please let this be Natasha yeah I so we're going to do that. we're going to do two songs we're going to do Once Upon a Time which is sung by Darius Dinesh as Rhett Butler Once upon a time she brought her son to the Now we're going to do Every Child, sung by Natasha Yvette Williams as Mammy. song for a moment of realisation in terms of saying to Scarlett that's all you've ever been looking for is love be jealous of your daughter's love that she's receiving because you you're just looking for it yourself and you've got it you've got me you've got yeah. Rhett I mean it's, a, it's such a weird one I, from that little bit of music that we can find I don't see anything hugely problematic with the music itself it's not mind it's not blowing definitely somebody who could write a song who could write lyrics mm. tell a bit of a story through song whether it's enough whether being alright at something is enough it's to... four million pounds and a West End theatre it's that or whether like you were saying before is it just something that you do for the love of it and you do a personal project and you put it on as a con- seems to have missed out a couple of stages mm. and I think there's this weird thing that I was thinking about the other day is I don't know why we also put so much value on how long people have done stuff for mm-hmm. loads of people are super young when they do amazing stuff it doesn't length of career doesn't therefore equal greatness Trevor Nunn as a director was revolutionary in his time but I wonder just at what point we're allowed to go but in terms of your direction style perhaps that was of that time and now what needs to happen is the next Trevor Nunn's to come through and emerge. Gone with the Wind cancels a couple of previews. It, there's not a huge amount of info about it in terms of its rehearsal process. I think something that is quite interesting when you watch the documentary is just how obviously alien that whole world is to Margaret Washington. Like when she comes into the theatre and she sees the set, she's like, and the audience go here. And you're like, what, in the chairs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mind blown. <laughs> like she looks so happy and so like enthralled well. that this is happening. Gone with the Wind lasted for 79 performances. 
at the New London. Susanna Clapp said, On press night, Jill Pace's Scarlet was sweet, though reedy. Which is slightly unfair because then she took the next week off for vocal rest. Which isn't great for any show when your leading lady goes off a week after press night. But that might be why she's reedy. Uh, Darius Dinesh's Rhett growly and smugly disdainful, was dominating, if occasionally disarming. Instead of snogging Scarlet, he gnawed her. Sounds gross. Um, <laughs> Kate Bassett for The Independent said, Tomorrow is another day, but this musical might not see it. The American Civil War has a great set. It's just a shame about the lousy songs, weak leads, and inept characterization. And then Nicholas DeJong said, Connoisseurs of big bad musicals must rush to catch Gone with the Wind in case it's blown away on gales of ridicule. Uh, overall pretty harsh always bad as well to have anything that is punnable by critics i.e tomorrow is another day gone with the wind is i think for me quite a sad one because i feel like it was such a labor of love by one person and i just think Mm. it's all quite misjudged i also think a london opening is very strange for that story yeah like you were saying about the chess thing i think it's just like i don't know does a london audience have a huge amount of emotional investment into this story I think it's just not ideal, to put it politely, not ideal source material done no, in a very I think that's right. literal way by a very literal creative team. Can you imagine Jamie Lloyd getting hold of something like that, going, do you know what people actually really love about Gone with the Wind is the story of Vivian Lee. So it's going to be a musical about Vivian Lee. That's what it sort of begs. It's the last source material that you would do something literal with, whereas perhaps The Baker's Wife is the perfect source material that you do something literal with. Do you have a favourite least successful Trevor Nunn musical? I think I'd have to go with the Broadway version of Chess. Okay, uh, nice. Judy Cum version, uh, just for her rendition of Nobody's Side, which is just glorious. Maybe we'll try and get that in somewhere. Like, it's goosebumpy. I think I'm going to go with The Baker's Wife as mine. You did enjoy that, didn't you? I did. I could see myself going to see it as a show and really having big issues with it. <laughs> it's, it's the weird thing about this podcast is you are choosing it based on sort of half a show. One day we'll get to a show that I have actually seen and then I'm going to blow everyone's socks off with my amazing <laughs> You're going to be well away. Unstoppable. Um, <laughs> oh, neither of us chose Gone with the Wind. <laughs> it's never gonna happen (laughs) thank you so much for talking to me about musicals musicals for asking me it's been a a total pleasure i would just like to say to anyone listening thank you so much for tuning in again if you listen to episode one and if you're new to us thank you very much as well for taking a punt on a brand new podcast Um, i would ask you a huge favor would you please recommend this podcast to any friends or family that you might enjoy this musical theatre journey give us a like or a share or both i'd also say if you have any ideas for musicals that i could talk about please send me a message through the take me or leave me website it's just www.takemeorleaveme.co.uk and i will look into them for the next series because this is a series which is the hit makers so we've already got all our episodes sorted for that but i was suggested after episode one american psycho which I bloody love as a musical and I am thinking that the next series might be musicals based on films. So yeah, but gotta finish this series first. Keep the ten listeners we've got. Please do join us again next episode where we will be talking about choreographer and director Michael Bennett, who we talked about briefly. This episode and some of his less successful shows. But yeah, that's it. And then I'll play a little song for us to play us out. That's the end of the podcast. Everybody's playing the game, but nobody's rules.